here. From Four games. It takes a very steady hand. Conventions. Toys. Star Trek action figures also sold separately. Comics. My spidey sense is tingling. Collectibles. Sold $325. Books. I'm a best-selling author. RPGs. Where the Cheetos? Video games. Grab and peels. Music. Anime. This is the GDP Podcast. Well, hey, everyone, and welcome to a rather gloomy G2V. I'm Scott Woodard, and joining me, as always, is my co-host who has thus far not been devoured by weasels, wounded by wasps, or mauled by a manatee. It's Arnold T. Blumberg. Hey, Arnold. Hey. And uh, our special guest for this episode is perhaps best known for two rather colossal creations. In tabletop role-playing game circles, he is the man behind the Eberron setting for Dungeons & Dragons. And in card gaming circles, he is the mad genius behind the transparent game of inauspicious incidents and grave consequences, also known as gloom. He's game designer and author Keith Baker. Welcome to the show, Keith. Howdy. Glad to be here. Yeah, we're really happy to have you on. This is uh, this is going to be a great conversation. You would be surprised how few people realize that I've done both Eberron and Gloom. Usually people know me for one and don't know the other. Yeah, and of course, uh, aren't we celebrating a 10th anniversary for both I, this year? Yeah, yeah, strangely, actually, again, they both uh, they both came out right around the same time. Oh, we should have candles and cake. And yet there is no Eberron edition of Gloom. You know, someday it will happen. Oh, now there's a mashup maybe people would want. <laughs> uh, well, I do have to I have to get one amusing thing out of the way. Um, so you're originally, were you from, or did you grow up in upstate New York? I did, Ithaca. Okay, okay, because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm also from upstate New York. I don't know if you knew that. I not. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we're also the same age, mm-hmm. which is Are kind of we shocking. the same person? Well, I don't think it's that. I actually think we might be twins separated at birth, and one of us is truly evil. Mm, that is possible, except I know that I was separated at birth with a person named Kevin, because any time someone gets my name wrong, 99% of the time they call me Kevin, and I think I am Kevin. And <laughs> Kevin Baker? It's all a terrible misunderstanding. Now, the thing that's even more amusing, I do have to toss this out. So you you mentioned Kevin, and of course... Um, one of my old, my oldest friends, uh, is another Kevin who knows you. So that's the weird part. And he went to school at Ithaca. So it's it's such a strange little little world. (laughs) No, wait a minute. I definitely am still me, right? You are definitely okay, you. Because I was worried there for a second. All right. I don't know. Yeah. I haven't you're, met you're, you in person, so you know. This is it's, true. It's and I'm often like called. Her. I'm often called Arthur. So ah. <laughs> we don't know what the hell's going on anymore. Yeah, I'm all confused because I was just going to say, you know, Arnold. We also know there's an Arnold Blumberg who's written books on you know, yeah. <laughs> Jewish history and that's things, right. and that, that's definitely not you. That's so. not me. Just to clear, clear up on that front. I will also note that there is a Keith Baker in Seattle who's a uh, renowned children's book author he's the one we were gonna talk to oh okay (laughs) sorry Uh, i i have been thinking we should team up on some kind of gloom thing but um kids gloom but uh but i did used to get a lot of invitations to go talk at elementary schools uh though i met him in the first time it really i was like at the time a I don't think I, I might have just gotten my first lead design job on a computer game, but I'm not even sure about that. And I'm like, um, okay, I guess. <laughs> Third graders want to know about the exciting career of computer game design? Sure. 
Oh, I love it. Uh, well, you know, speaking of uh, computer game design, I mean, your background, uh, does it start in computer in video game design? Yes and no. So basically, I always knew I wanted to be a game designer from a very early age. And when I was in high school and college, I did tinker on a few board games and such. Uh, I also really enjoyed role-playing games. Um, I started playing D&D probably in fourth grade-ish. And basically, I knew, hey, people write these. You know, people write these books. That's a job that you can have. And so I knew that I wanted to work on role-playing games. But the thing is, especially back then, there was not a clear path for how you got that job. Right. Uh, and so I got out of college um, and studied English and history and folklore and things like that. And sort of discovered, yeah, where, where does that happen? And then I happened, basically, you know, I'm working at the bookstore, and there happened to be an opening at a computer game company called Magnet Interactive Studios, and uh, where I worked with Andrew Looney, who is the genius behind uh, Looney Labs, uh, made ah, Lux Chrononauts, uh, you know, various other games. Um, and so basically, it wasn't the field I planned to be in, but the opening was there and it paid decent money. And so I probably have about 12 years of experience, if you add it all together, designing computer games, mostly MMOs. And of those, the vast majority have never come out. I had two games, both of which were really good and really interesting, that I worked on for three years and then they were canceled in beta. So, so certainly when I first, it was after the second one of those games, which was called Lost Continents, was, uh, was canceled that I basically said, eh, I'm quitting this and just going to try being a full-time freelancer. And that was the year Wizards did the fantasy setting search. So that worked out for me. Oh, okay. Uh, So that was 2002 then? Yeah. But at that point, I had been working in the computer industry for eight years and basically didn't have, as a lead designer, and basically didn't have a game. People would say, what'd you work on? And I'm like, yeah, nothing you've ever seen. Hmm. Did you find, did you find that your experience in doing it was something that was translatable? Like games are games and and so the logic and all that. And, And it's always been my... What has always interested me is so I've worked on MMOs, I've worked on role-playing games, I've worked on card games, I've worked on board games, I've worked on live role-playing games, I've written novels. And to me, it is actually very much, I like to, to liken it to comparing martial arts to fencing, that there are certain principles that do just carry over. Mm-hmm. And certainly when I was working on MMOs, what I'm always doing is a lot of people criticized 4th edition Dungeons and Dragons for feeling too much like an MMO on paper. And to me, the thing was designing MMOs, I was always looking for how can we take the things that really make role-playing, pen and paper role-playing, shine. How do we get more of that into an MMO? Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, for me, it was always interesting basically just looking at what different forms of gaming do well, you know, what different mediums, what are their strengths and how do they reflect on one another? And it's all storytelling. And, and basically, I mean, that's what it comes down to for me is what I like is storytelling. Mm -hmm. And to me, it's very interesting 
you know, basically your ability to tell a story is completely different in when you're writing a novel, when you're doing a role-playing game, when you're doing an MMO, at which point the story now potentially involves a thousand people, but you still want each person to feel like they are part of an interesting story, uh, or then to a card game like Gloom, where the point is really, to me, what really drives Gloom is the storytelling, that it's a, a you know, sort of foundation for coming up with a fun story. So for me, sort of storytelling is the, the common thread that links together all the stuff I've worked on. Well, so you met, I mean, obviously we're going to talk a little bit about gloom. Um, what came first? Cause you did mention the, the, uh, the, uh, setting, uh, search, mm-hmm. uh, in 2002, which sort of, you know, came after your, your video game, computer game design thing, right. but was gloom sort of, was it always in the works with you? Were you already working on this, this, uh, the design for gloom before then, or, or did no, that come much later? Or? Not at all. Um, gloom came, so the setting search happened in 2002, I think. We'll, we'll say that. I think uh, that's when it was. And, <laughs> but then basically the setting search started around June of 2002, but it took quite a long time for them to actually uh, select people. I don't think they selected their final choice until something like February of 2003. Because it went through three rounds. They had like 12,000 entries initially. They narrowed those down to 11. They narrowed those down to three. And they narrowed, then they picked Eberron. And I remember Thanksgiving 2002, I was working on the final 100-page uh, story Bible for, for Eberron then. So I don't think they, they chose it until February 2003. And then even after that, there was a long process of actually brainstorming it, polishing it, working with Bill Slavisek and Chris Perkins and James Wyatt to produce the the fantasy setting, um, you know, the setting book that is out. And it was during that time in 2003 that I came up with Gloom and, you know, pitched that at Atlas. And part of that was because I'd been working with Atlas Games on role-playing stuff. They'd been publishing uh, D20 supplements, and I also wrote for them for a game called Over the Edge. And this is the point. While I was doing computer games, I also started freelancing with role-playing companies. I found small companies and, and did things there. So around 2003, Atlas decided to sort of start getting out of the D20 market uh, a project we were going to work on got canceled, and they said, but our card games are doing great. If you've got a card game, let us know. And that was probably February of 2003 they said that. So I had that in the back of my mind. They are looking for an interesting card game. And then I would say probably November, I was in a shop, and I saw a deck of transparent playing cards and just a poker deck. And um, basically, it was intriguing, but it was completely pointless. There was no point to the transparency (laughs) other than to look cool. But I saw that and said, if you can print on transparent plastic, I want to make something that actually uses it. And I think this comes back to just an interesting point with card and board game design that I really think 
as we get into 3D printers, it's going to be very interesting, is mm. so much of our design work is limited by our components. Mm-hmm. We use cards and dice because, well, that's what we have, and we think of different ways to use them. So here was the point of, I just saw a component I didn't know was in the arsenal and mm. said, wow, transparency. Okay, what can I do with that? And came up with a basic mechanic and... Uh, essentially, to me, I really like. I'm I'm a huge fan of Ebergori, uh, Charles Adams, uh, and basically Lemony Snicket was big right around then. So that sort of told me there is a modern audience for this, and that mm-hmm. kids, you know, appreciate this humor. It isn't just old gory fans. And you know, again, there were a ton of fantasy and science fiction games out there. And so it was a matter of having this interesting mechanic and wanting to find a different sort of flavor for it and something that appealed to me personally. Well, now, because a lot of our audience aren't necessarily gamers, um, could you describe what Gloom is, sort of the elevator pitch? Certainly. So uh, Gloom is a game in which you control a family of eccentric individuals and you want your family to suffer miserably and die. Keeping your opponents happy, healthy, and alive. And the way I like to think about this is imagine it's one of those conversations where you're saying, eh, when I was your age, you know, I had to walk to school and bare feet through the snow. And, well, I wish we had snow. We had to walk through broken glass. You know, it's one of these, you're essentially trying to establish that your family has had it the worst of anybody. You know, your story is the most miserable story around. And um, and so, again, you're playing these terrible things on, on your family. Although, as you noted in the intro, gloom very much. It's, it's like I said, it's like the Adams family. There's all these bad things that happen, but they are things like being mauled by a manatee uh, or pursued by poodles, chased by children. Uh, I believe we have one that I want to say it's mangled by mimes. Because they are, in fact, silent but deadly. A fate um, worse than death. And uh, so, so you know, it's bad things, but it's all very much that sort of, again, it's, uh, to me, like I say, look to Lemony Snicket with, yo, if you want a happy game, then don't play this game, for this is a tale of misery and woe. Um, and as I said before, so it's a transparent you know, it uses transparent cards. So you have your family cards that have a portrait on them. And then as you play the game, you're laying cards on top of them that change their scores and have other effects. But part of what makes it fun is, uh, while it is not required, you're encouraged to tell a story about what is the thing that happens. So I have a card that says, Trapped on a Train. And I'm going to say that Melissa Slogar was trapped on a train. Well, why was she? How was she trapped on a train? Why was she on the train in the first place? And, you know, I'm saying, well, she was taking the train down to the big city to finally see the big city. And, oh, you know, suddenly she found all the doors were locked. What's going to happen next? And basically, I might then play another card that we discover, oh, she was trapped in the aquarium train with uh, with the manatee. And it, things get <laughs> ugly. Uh, Or you might play a card and say, oh, but that was where she found true love. And they were married magnificently by the uh, conductor of the train. Foiled again. And, And that's sort of the point is, is, 
That way you sort of get these different stories that evolve. You know, the cards suggest events, but it's up to you to piece together how do they apply this time. All games considered. With news, now we have a press release. Views, the fiction I know is not everyone's cup of tea, but this one is pretty creepy. I like it. Reviews, it doesn't bother me as much because you're not worried about the weapons tables because there aren't any. And interviews, Sean Patrick Fannin. Greg Payline from uh, Microtactics Incorporated. Uh, I'm Andy Chambers with Games Workshop. On Tabletop Games, visit us at agcpodcast.info. That's agcpodcast.info. I was going to say that the transparent mechanic is one of the things that I find just the most attractive about it, just as a concept, just mm-hmm. the idea that we're, we're so used to certain things that your discovery, the way you describe like your discovery of it, like you didn't know that was in the arsenal. Like we're, we're so often trapped just in basic design into things you take for granted. And it's like, this, this is a card game. This is a board game with pieces. And suddenly a material can change the whole thing. And yep. just the concept that you can stack them and create a whole different mechanic based on that. It's just one of the most beautiful things I like about it mm-hmm. is that it's just so inventive. And then from there, I mean, you could do anything with that kind. It, it's interesting. There isn't a lot more uh, experimentation it with me. it. I mean, it's been 10 years. And there's one or two other games I know of, uh, Renaissance Fair by Atlas Games, and then Wizards of the Coast put out a game called Hecatomb, which used transparency in sort of a minor way, less than, than Gloom. But those are the only ones I really know about. And there's a number of other uh, games that use transparent cards, but again, they don't make use of the transparency. You know, the whole point of Gloom is as you stack the cards up, you know, it changes what you can see, and you that's what mm-hmm. tells the scores. And like I say, uh, you know, there's a number of transparent games that just, they have no reason to be transparent other than that the cards look cool. So as, uh, you know, for me with the challenge with Gloom was um, finding a way to really make that matter. And I've thought about, you know, it is something I still have a number of other designs on the back burner that are just, again, I feel there's a lot more you can do uh, exploring that material. Now, the Gloom did win the uh, 2005 Origins Award for Best Traditional Card Game, did it uh, not? It did indeed. And then you also dominated the, <laughs> the Origins Awards that same year with Eberron, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, that might be true. Or Eberron. <laughs> I think Eberron was the year before. Oh, was it? Okay. Um, I thought perhaps it was the I same year that... Eberron... I think I developed Eberron. Yeah, see, that's the thing. I think actually Eberron came out in 2000, late 2003, and Gloom came out early 2004, okay. I want to say. Um, I'm pretty sure that's the case. And and yeah, because I think I got Origins Awards two years in a row, but I know I didn't get two in, two in one sitting. Um, and then the I've, I've been nominated, like Cthulhu Gloom got nominated but it lost to, I want to say, where are my nuts or something like that. It's, it's, there's poo and there's, you know, where's my nuts. And, you know, there's a little <laughs> line of those games. And I was joking that clearly if I want to, to beat those, I need to come up with, you know, something, holy shit. And it's whether a bear shits in the woods or something. I don't know. 
<laughs> you, you would think maybe like an elder god would have beaten out nuts or uh, I guess poop. apparently scatological humor trumps Lovecraftian literature. I'm just strangely saying. we've encountered something like that ourselves a few times. <laughs> yeah, that does seem to be the case. Well, you mentioned Cthulhu Gloom. It, we should also mention that besides Gloom itself. Like a lot of other games that have done a similar kind of thing, you do have you have expansions for Gloom, and yes. then Cthulhu Gloom came along as a self-contained edition, but that could also be considered an expansion, right? Right. Well, Cthulhu Gloom is is in, is entirely intended to be a standalone game. You can mix them together, but I don't particularly recommend it. Mm -hmm. uh, I think you'd be better off. You could put a regular Gloom expansion into your Cthulhu Gloom set, but I wouldn't just jam them all together because you miss some of the effects. One of the things in Cthulhu Gloom is certain cards cause a character to go mad, and then that affects how cards react to them. And if you mix them all together, you're going to dilute up your, your madness there. And Cthulhu Gloom I was very happy with because it just fit very naturally in that... Well, let's face it, the average story, you know, you're going to have people who delve into to things they shouldn't go mad and die. Uh, and so it sort of fit with the uh, general things don't end well theme of gloom. Mm -hmm. While you then again try and keep your opponents sane and healthy and alive. So Well, and certainly the aesthetic of, of Lovecraftian horror, you know, fits in perfectly with that Charles Adamish. Absolutely. Gory, yeah, quality of the original. And I also did uh, a Cthulhu edition of Flux. So Cthulhu Flux, which was a very interesting challenge in terms of trying to make the game essentially feel legitimately Lovecraftian in nature and not simply, oh, it's just like Flux, except the names on the cards are different. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know if you've played it, but Flux traditionally is a very casual, light game in which the rules are always changing until somebody wins. Right. Absolutely. And Cthulhu Flux basically adds in this element of doom where certain cards have doom values on them. And that is a global resource shared in the table. And then there are certain cards that are ungoals, which if the, an ungold goes down and its conditions are met, everybody loses. Mm. And so you have this thing of, well, you're just playing flux like usual and just trying to win. But at the same time, you have this, we need to make sure that we don't all lose. It's like a mm -hmm. very low level of cooperative play sort of layered on top. And as I said, I like it because, I mean, it is distinctly different from standard flux and you know to my mind really does uh draw on the, the materials i also like we managed to design it so you don't have to know a whole lot of lovecraft to appreciate it um one of the things about cthulhu gloom is cthulhu gloom has a lot of fairly you know fairly shall we say erudite uh references that you know you could have read a certain amount of Lovecraft and still not know what that card is referring to. Uh, whereas Cthulhu Flux is very much designed so you don't have to know the stories to get the cards, but if you do know the stories, you get more out of the cards. Um, and so I'm very happy with that. So no need to have a, a complete understanding of non-Euclidean geometry. Well, it's even just things like basically following the standard basis of Flux uh, you have keepers, and so you'll have a keeper that's the drunk, 
And along the side of it, it says it's Zadugalan. And so the point is, if you know Chetlinsmith, you're like, oh, it's that particular drunk. But if you don't, (laughs) it's the drunk. That's all you need to know. (laughs) You don't need to know which drunk. It's the drunk. It's the librarian. It's the professor. And But as I say, the details are there so the person who does know them can say, oh, I know exactly what this is. Well, and I like the fact that you you actually went back and worked with uh, Looney on this, that that you guys had known each other so long ago, and now you finally got the chance to work on something together. Oh, yeah, we've been been friends for around 20 years, and um, I considered pitching Gloom to them, but it's just so not Looney Labs flavor. Mm -hmm. Uh, So even though we were friends and they have a good company, Gloom is just a much better match for Atlas's uh, basically, if you look on the shelf with Flux Aquarius, uh, you know, and then stick Gloom there, it doesn't look right. Whereas when you put it up next to Lunch Money and Let's Kill, it's like, okay. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Perfectly compatible there for sure. How many different things exist so far in the Gloom series? Is the original Gloom and then what was it? Three expansions so far? Uh, at the moment, um, it's four expansions. Four. So okay. Basically, each expansion... First off, just adds more cards, so it adds more story elements. But each one also does add a concrete new little game element that you can mm-hmm. choose to use or not use. So, so it enhances it, the gameplay at the same time. And it allows you, as I said, because I don't usually play with all of these at once, it's sort of pick what you want. So do we want guests this time or do we want to use mysteries this time? So mm-hmm. basically you have unhappy homes, and that introduces residences and mysteries. You have unwelcome guests, and that introduced guests who are essentially neutral characters who move around from family to family. And unfortunate expeditions, which adds expeditions, which are sort of global effects that Mm -hmm. shift. Uh, And then the most recent one came out last year, and that's Unquiet Dead. And that basically sounds good. It basically (laughs) has a very gothic flavor to it and brings in a lot of classic horror movie motifs. Very nice. Um, and one of the things it does is it allows you to actually have undead characters. So, nice. oh, well, there we go. Um, a vampire <laughs> or a ghost or a mummy. And at that point, they are dead, but they can still keep having stuff happen to them. And Cthulhu Gloom itself has an expansion. Cthulhu Gloom has uh, unpleasant dreams. And mm-hmm. okay. that actually brings in guests to, uh, to Cthulhu Gloom because I really like guests. And not all the expansions have families, correct? Uh, they all do, except for um, Unwelcome, I mean, Unquiet Dead. So basically, okay. the base game comes with four families, and then each expansion adds a new family, except for Unquiet Dead. And the thing is, families in Gloom, there's no mechanical difference. It's all really who do you want to tell a story about. Mm-hmm. So the basic one, you have circus freaks, mad scientists, city folks, and country folks. Now I'm blanking. Unwelcome guests adds a sort of mobster family. Um, unhappy homes adds the tortured artists. And um, unfortunate expeditions adds the sort of jungle explorer, Johnny Quest sort of family. <laughs> the venture family, if you will. Awesome. Oh, good. Going back, the other thing I should mention uh, is that there is, of course, another special expansion for Gloom, which is Tabletop Gloom. 
and Tabletop Gloom was produced for Tabletop Day uh, in 2013. And I think that there will still be copies being sent around with uh, to places doing official 2014 Tabletop Day events. Uh, but still, it's it's never been sold. You know, it's a very limited edition thing, and that has Will and Felicia as guests, uh, <laughs> and then stories for the Losers Couch and the Tabletop Trophy of Awesome, uh, and then a number of uh, modifiers and events tied to things like Bump to the Board and Triumphed on Tabletop and Distracted Dr. Hannah. Uh, and things like that. So as I say, it's it's a little 15-card expansion that the, the only place to get it is at Tabletop Day events. Yeah, and I remember we did get, uh, I was actually, I worked the uh, the Tabletop events at uh, Powell's uh, here in Portland last year. Mm-hmm. And if I'm not mistaken, I think we only got one or two in the box, and those were given away as prizes. So uh, I'm assuming, yeah, we'll probably see some I more show up in the box this year. It's probably going to be the same sort of thing. They're sending, you know, two or three out to wherever they get sent to. So. Okay. Okay, great. Well, there's something that people can look forward to at, uh, at their Tabletop events. Two longtime fans of two bionic shows discuss an episode in detail every two weeks. Cyborgs, a bionic podcast. Find us at chronicrift.com slash cyborgs or subscribe on iTunes. Speaking of tabletop events, actually, yes. um, my understanding is you are not going to be in this country that is for, for international I'm going tabletop. To be in uh, in Iceland, and unfortunately, my goal was to to do a tabletop day event at a, a store in Reykjavik. Unfortunately, it looks like we might actually we miscalculated the dates of our travel, and we might be you know like out on a glacier on tabletop day. <laughs> so I may be getting my tabletop in uh, the night before. Uh, you know, warm up event uh, or something. Yeah, but we need to. You're going to have to tweet a photo of you playing some game on a glacier. I will. It will be done. <laughs> I, I think that is a fine idea. Well, that's excellent. Well, as I said, we were um, we talked already a little bit about Eberron, and I, I don't certainly don't want to disappoint the the RPG players certainly. out there. Uh, so uh, why don't we talk a little bit about that? Um, perhaps give again an elevator pitch about what the Eberron setting is like, uh, at least the way it was, the way Certainly. it's perhaps evolving. And uh, yeah, we'll talk about that right now. So Eberron is a setting for Dungeons and Dragons, and that's sort of an integral point to it because it was sort of established from the start. It was going to have all the stuff that was in Dungeons and Dragons. And one of the things to me is that there's a lot of stuff in just sort of the rules of Dungeons and Dragons that doesn't necessarily make sense. Uh, And so I wanted to try and make it make sense to me. Uh, And the the critical point here is magic. That magic in D&D, wizards, 
have this power. It's reliable. It's repeatable. You can teach it to people. You can make new spells. And in other words, it really behaves like science. And so the thing to me is how you could have this in the world and over the course of thousands of years not have it evolve. And so Eberron, in some ways, the core bit of the idea was if we had magic like D&D does in the Renaissance, instead of science, what would the world look like today? So a lot of people call it magic tech, and the point to me is it's not really that. It's essentially magic being used instead of technology, as opposed to magic-powered technology. Uh, but it is a world in which magic is used for many of the things we you solve through technology. So, you know, you're going to see streets lit by uh, continual flame, you know. Uh, famously, it has airships and warforge, which are golems that are, you know, sort of uh, produced for war. Having said that, the one-sentence elevator pitch that I shot at Wizards way back in the day was... Raiders of the Lost Ark meets the Maltese. It was Lord of the Rings meets Raiders of the Lost Ark and the Maltese Falcon. Um, so it is basically a mesh of three things. That desire of mine to have magic play a, a more central role to the world, and then essentially my love of pulp serials and film noir. And so it's very much, and that's sort of, it's again, it's often called pulp noir, but that's really a spectrum you know, you go on the gritty streets of Sharn and you have your very much, uh, you know, your sort of big sleep sort of scenario. Mm. But you can also head out into Zendrick and uh, have crazy uh, Indiana Jones expeditions. Um, beyond that, I would just say that Eberron, tying back to those points, is just a setting where I tried to bring in, essentially, I would just say things that are more modern story elements um a lot of you know a lot of the major uh settings are more in a sort of high fantasy tolkien sort of flavor mm -hmm. and eberron is a place where we have what i'd almost say some cyberpunk elements where we're sort of exploring mercantile power measured against uh the power of nations uh, with a number of sort of magical guilds that, you know, are wielding tremendous economic power. Uh, we have one of the driving forces of the, the setting is a civil war that's just come to an end that sort of devastated uh, the Old Kingdom. And we essentially have what amounts to a Hiroshima event where a nation has been devastated by a magical attack in this war with the exception that we don't know what caused it. And so it's a little bit like the end of World War One, and a little bit like the end of World War Two. sort of, you know, we're in this sort of Cold War rebuilding, devastated by the war place. And so as I said, it's just a little more trying to have political intrigue and sort of issues that, again, feel very resonant to us in our world even though it's cast in a fantasy setting, if that makes any sense. 
No, absolutely. And, and of course, it was a world that spawned not only several supplements, but also uh, a series of novels, uh, many of which you wrote. Am I correct? At the moment, I think it has around 33 novels, and I wrote six of those. That's mm. an impressive selection. And so, for example, my, my second series, uh, Thorn of Brayland, is basically if you mashed up James Bond and Alias and dropped it in a fantasy setting. So the point to me is it's a spy thriller. And it's basically, I wanted to say, well, what is espionage like in this Cold War environment in a world that is a world of Medusas and, uh, you know, elves and, and magic and wizards and things like that? I will say the, the first novel is called The Queen of Stone. Uh, the original title I had for it was The Medusa Sanction which I liked a lot more, but turned out someone else had used it for something. Oh. And, and the point to me was trying to get across that this is a spy novel. It's just a spy novel in a fantasy world. And it was very interesting there. It is, again, still you are very much driven by the D&D rule set. And so part of what was interesting for me was to say, okay, these are the tools. It's all back to, to gloom of that, what are the tools we are building from? And, okay, if, if the tools are the D&D role set, how can you use these things for magic? I, not for magic, for espionage. You know, how would, how would this affect uh, how espionage functions? So besides all the existing expansions and Cthulhu Gloom adding a new twist to the game, do people have a future new developments in Gloom to look forward to? Uh, absolutely. I'm I'm not sure how many more expansions we'll do. I mean, we have four, and you know, there's a certain limit to to how much the game can support. Sure. Uh, but at the same time, I've certainly considered a number of other uh, sort of gloom genres, if you will. And it's not something where I want to make every kind of gloom you can possibly imagine. I mean, there are certain things that just don't really fit the sort of gloom theme. But, you know, we've looked at a corporate gloom that, you know, would be, uh, you know, wanting to get fired so you can get on and do something more interesting with your life. But dealing hmm. with all the sort of corporate misery, uh, I've definitely looked at a fairy tale gloom. Uh, because again, you know, a lot of fairy tales actually have pretty, pretty grim endings. Um, oh, I see what you did there, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and essentially, the point to me is to have a new gloom, I want it to be something where it really is both about the storytelling and where the sort of dark humor of it fits mm -hmm. uh, with the thing. I don't want to just make superhero gloom just because I could. If you see right, what I'm saying, right. uh, actually considered at one point a, a zombie apocalypse gloom. Uh, hey, the idea yeah. there was was that you know when your characters die, they actually become zombies. Sure, um, but it, it you know again, I've I've had a lot of different things that I've I've played around with, but I doubt you'll see too many of them. But you'll probably see one or two. Now, uh, what about some of the other stuff that you may be working on for the future? Are you able to share any secrets? Well, I have uh, <laughs> at least one thing that I am not able to share, but I am excited about. Um, what I am working on that I'm, I am excited about, and there'll be more news later in the year, is a new role-playing game called Phoenix, uh, technically Phoenix Nine Deaths. 
Uh, and it is a card-based role-playing game, uh, but it is definitely a traditional tabletop role-playing game with a game master and such. Uh, and among other things, one of the things that makes it fit with my whole oeuvre uh, is that it is a game in which uh, death is actually the character advancement mechanism. Uh, basically, you are playing a, a, a sort of supernaturally endowed champion uh, who, when you die, you can come back and you come back stronger than before. You are a phoenix. But you don't come back right away, and you don't. Uh, you can only come back eight times, uh, and so each time you die, you do get more powerful, but you also get closer to the end of the road. And the main thing is that that lets us sort of explore very different sorts of stories uh, than you normally do in a Dungeons and Dragons environment. We can definitely stack the odds very high. Um, to me, a good example is if you look to Lord of the Rings with Moriah, where you can go in, you're sent to deal with these orcs in this mine, uh, and essentially at the end you discover, oh, there's a Balrog there, and none of us can stop that. You know, none of us are tough enough to beat it, but will one of us hold the bridge and stay behind and die hmm. uh, to save the others? And that this is a story, you know, this is a, a setting and a system where that, you know, someone can make that decision and not have it be the end of the road for them. And so, as I say, that's something I'm currently playtesting. Uh, I'm working on that with a friend of mine, Dan Garrison. And we'll be talking more about that. That's something we'll eventually probably kickstart. We'll see. Uh, but we're not going to take that step until the game is pretty much, you know, completely done. So, so like I say, something I'll be talking more about probably in a couple of months. Well, that's great. And color me intrigued for sure. Um, now, the other thing, too, of course, is I'm sure there are a few people out in the audience who are wondering if Eberron will be continuing uh, as we move into D&D next. Is there any any indication of that happening? Uh, there's no concrete news. I certainly talk with wizards every couple months. And, you know, basically they haven't. They're still sort of just figuring out what is what is the big plan. And so it's definitely something they're thinking about. They included Warforged in uh, one of the, the playtest updates. You know, generally when they talk about things online, they often bring, bring up Eberron. So Eberron definitely isn't forgotten, um, but I don't know yet. Basically, I think it will get support. I just don't know yet what that support will look like. Uh, in the meantime, I write Q&As every couple of weeks or at least once a month on my website, uh, keith-baker.com. And I've, I've written quite a bunch of, of entirely unofficial, but still I like to think interesting uh, Eberron stuff there. Well, we'll definitely have the link to your uh, your blog, your site on uh, in our show notes. Uh, people can certainly follow that and keep up with all the news from the the world of Keith Baker. And Keith, I really want to thank you for joining us on the, on the show. Um, I've been wanting to get you on for a while, and uh, it's been a great conversation. Thanks again for coming. Oh, very on. glad to be here. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of G to V. 
Pop on over to g2vpodcast.com for links to all our episodes, as well as show notes and our Three is a Magic Number series. Subscribe to us on iTunes, and please rate and review us while you're there. Follow us on Twitter at g2vpodcast. Join our Facebook page. And our email address is contact at g2vpodcast.com. 